This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Carolyn E, who's a GP and research fellow at the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, that's NICM, in Western Sydney University, and was one of the first practicing medical doctors in Australia to gain dual qualifications in Chinese medicine. Dr. E specializes in clinical trials on acupuncture in women's health and is the current chair of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, that's the RACGP, Integrative Medicine Specific Interest Group. She also leads the JACA Foundation Integrative Medicine Program at NICM, which focuses on clinical service delivery, education, and translational research in integrative medicine. Welcome warmly to FX Medicine. Carolyn E, how are you? Hi, very good, thanks. Now, Carolyn, we're going to be talking today about the relevance of acupuncture for polycystic ovarian syndrome. So there's all these acronyms flying around the place, PCOS. Um, Can I just ask first off, PCOS, PCOD, is there one that's more appropriate now? That's a really good question. It's it's, um, PCOS at the moment, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, But I know that there's been some... um, some discussions around changing the uh, terminology. Um, but for the moment, it is a syndrome, and, and it refers to, I guess, um, a syndrome is a you know a collection of signs and symptoms, um, so it's not seen as, a I guess, a disorder so much. And, of course, we have to go back to your beginnings because you are duly qualified. What made you undertake medicine in the first place and then drew you to Chinese medicine and acupuncture? Yes, look, I wanted to be a doctor um, from the time I was quite little. I wanted to help people, basically. Um, And I really enjoy um, the, I guess, the the clinical interaction with patients. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, when I was a junior doctor, it was... It was quite an eye-opener, you know, all my time was spent in hospitals with really sick people um, and often they didn't seem to be getting better and a lot of people came in um, because of iatrogenic um, side effects, so side effects from um, taking pharmaceuticals. And I was just, I just wondered um, if there was, you know, other ways to help my patients get better, if there was a way to help them um, achieve better health and well-being. Um, and I was really interested in the philosophy of Chinese medicine, and, and it, it's it's fascinating because it's it's tied into you know uh, the religions, um, Buddhism and Taoism. It's tied into martial arts. So there's a sort of underpinning philosophy that I found really interesting, and and, and that was you know diametrically opposite to I, I guess biomedicine. Um, and so I decided as a as a very young junior doctor after doing three years in the hospital system that I needed to really pursue that um, and go into it um, on a very deeper level. I didn't want to just 
do a couple of weekend courses that wasn't going to satisfy me at that point. Um, so I decided to do another undergraduate degree at RMIT, and I think it was the best decision I ever made. That was the um, Bachelor of Applied Science um, in Chinese Medicine, yeah. um, and did that in three years. So got exemptions for um, some of the other subjects. Um, went to China for seven months. Did all that. Learned about Chinese herbs and um, and graduated. And then um, started to go about thinking about how I'm going to combine the two um, medical degrees. I could imagine that you would have copped some flack from your peers, from your cohort in in medicine, going, "Oh, she's one of those <laughs> sort of thing." Yeah, look, it was interesting. I think early on, um, people are a lot more open to things. I think there's a lot more skepticism now, to be honest. Um, but you know, people with you know, fairly welcoming of that. They were, they were, you know, they they saw that I I was pursuing something I was passionate in. Interestingly, one colleague of mine who is from China, um, a doctor colleague, told me that I was making a terrible decision. <laughs> he was probably the only one who said that. Yeah. Um, but I don't even get it at all. It's really, um, it's really changed my outlook on on health and how we view health. Um, and of course, I've you know come back to biomedicine. I'm a practicing GP now. I consider myself a doctor first and foremost. Um, and these are all the additional tools in my toolbox. Yeah, I think it's funny when people sort of poo-poo something without knowing about it. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, you take it back to martial arts and tai chi and things like that. Well, anybody open to mindfulness or? Yeah, yeah, that experiential stuff. You know, can really change the way that a, a doctor or any health professional looks at looks at the human body and how it works, I think. What about the history of acupuncture itself? When you when you were taught acupuncture, surely yeah. you had to delve back into the history. But what how did it make its yeah. way into modern medicine, particularly in Australia, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think um I, I would say that one thing that got me into research was that we were taught a lot about the history of Chinese medicine, the history of acupuncture and 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 um and herbs and so on. Um but no one really told me how it all worked and I was as you say, I was searching for, you know, how does it work and what's the mechanism and, and I was just told sort of two thousand years of history, um and that's enough, you know, it's all that, you know, two thousand years worth of anecdotes. And I, I thought, well no, I really want to know and use my scientific mind to find out. But if we 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 go back to the history of acupuncture and, and its use. So I think originally people think that it might have originated from um, findings thousands of years ago that um, if someone was injured, mm-hmm. like, you know, with, with sort of lacerating injury, that they had, had some kind of painkilling effect. And if, you know, if soldiers were at battle and they were pierced by something, it seemed to have this sort of... Um, contradictory um, analgesic effects. Um, and so found, I think, um, acupuncture needles that were made of bone that were obviously quite big and probably quite invasive um, thousands of years ago. And then over time, they evolved into, I think they used um, various types of metal. And of course, now we've got the really modern um, acupuncture needles that are all very thin and produced, um, you know, according to very strict um uh, manufacturing conditions, and they're all sterile and one use only, and so on. And they even have a guide tube, so it's all, um, you know, so so it protects the um, the shaft of the needle from, you know, handling with um, with hands. Ah, of course, for so, CCSD. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then um, 
in the West, it became uh, very popular probably after the 70s where there was a lot of interest after Nixon went to China on a tour and one of his staff, um, I think reportedly, uh, had appendicitis and had the appendix removed um, under anesthesia that was augmented um, with um, acupuncture, and and that was that was a really you know that that was obviously a, that sort of life changing wow yeah. I've experienced the event, um, and it became much more popular in the West after that after some seminal research by um, J S Hahn um, where he did um, I think it was on rabbits and he gave acupuncture to one group of rabbits and then he took out the cerebrospinal fluid, so the fluid that sort of bears the spinal cord, and then he injected that into um, the cerebrospinal fluid of other rabbits and then found that they had this, uh, it had this analgesic effect, so he deduced that oh, it was what? something in the CFS um, and we found that it was endorphins um, that what was responsible um, for the pain-killing effects. So I think establishing um, that um, the physiological mechanism of acupuncture um, has really uh, led to, I guess, its popularity in, in the West. So I'm a medical acupuncturist as well. So I, um, after training in Chinese medicine, I did the uh, grad cert in medical acupuncture at Monash, um, so I can give um, acupuncture to my patients and they get Medicare rebates. For it, so that's um, I guess that's that's a that's that sort of represents the embracing of this modality amongst um, medical doctors and there's you know medical acupuncture journals and and societies and so on. So, is the medical use of acupuncture is that restricted to the use for pain? It certainly is now in the guidelines for um, as a baseline treatment for um, low back pain. So, for example, I yeah. think it was the quite recently, a year or two ago, it was the American College of Physicians uh, releasing their guidelines on um, management of um, acute and chronic low back pain. Yeah. And acupuncture's in there as, uh, you know, one of the baseline treatments. So you try that before you ever go to, you know, more dangerous things like, or dangerous things like opioids, I should say. So, yeah. um, so you know, the fact that it's made, it's there to the guidelines, yeah, it clearly indicates that um, there is a recognition that it, it's um, effective for pain. Um, but what I'm really interested in, and which brings it to the polycystic ovary syndrome that I'm um, researching at the moment, is its effect on um, the sympathetic nervous system, so the fight-or-flight response. Oh. And there's really interesting data coming out um, that's very early, but um, I think, you know, potentially really powerful at the effect of, you know, not just on the opioids, which is reasonably well established, um, but on things like your adrenaline levels mm. um, and and the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. So we're talking about vagal nerve stimulation here. Yes, we are. Yep, absolutely. And um, and we're also talking about um, reduction of uh, of the other side, so the sympathetic nervous system. The um, and that seems to, yeah, so increasing the parasympathetic and decreasing the sympathetic. Um, and that brings, a, uh, that's got an impact um, on things like insulin resistance. Mm. And so that's got a lot of different 
ramifications for um, many types of chronic disease. Now, this is really interesting because I was speaking, I've spoken a couple of times to Emrys Goldsworthy about this. He uses various ways of innovating the vagus nerve by, you know, gargling, singing, and um, yeah. I think there's an inner an inner part of the oracle of the ear. There's a few things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But is that where you administer the acupuncture or do you administer the acupuncture to other sites where you're accessing the vagus nerve? Um, so the vagus nerve can be accessed through um, the ear. So we are using ear acupuncture yep. in um, one of our um, trials. Um, and we're actually trialling a new device um, that's FDA cleared but is not um, currently available in Australia that um, that will pre- uh, provide um, what we call protracted acupuncture to the ear. So it's, it's actually pitched as sort of neuromodulation and it's really taking, you know, the roots of acupuncture and applying a, a very modern um, take to it. Um, and what I'm really excited about is that there's – there were a couple of trials published in, in the Australian Family Physician, actually, many years ago. Um, but they, this study looked at um, the effect of ear acupuncture mm. um, on um, appetite and reported that um, needling the ear and stimulating the points in the ear um, seemed to reduce appetite. Um, and so what we're trying to see is, um, is this one of the potential mechanisms as well as um, the effect on the sympathetic nervous system that can help um, women with PCOS manage their weight? Because if they manage their weight, um, which is um, quite difficult for them to get on top of, um, then it can really significantly change all the other um, aspects of their condition. So um, it can improve their fertility, it reduces risk of diabetes and so on, and it changes um, the physical signs as well um, so they have less acne um, and less excessive um, facial hair. This is quite stunning. If, if this is going to um, have a clinical effect because you're accessing a vagal nerve and you're dampening yes. a multitude of biochemical processes or aberrant yes. biochemistry by accessing mm. one pathway. This is huge. Yeah, I think so. And we, uh, I was a bit sceptical about the effect of um, acupuncture on metabolic disorders and overweight obesity. I thought, well, how can you lose weight if you lie down on the couch for half an hour, you know, once a week and have some needles put mm. in? Um, and I thought, no, that's rubbish. You have to, you know, eat well and exercise more and, and it's quite simple. Um, and then I started looking at the evidence on this and um, and the evidence was really surprising that it is quite, it's often quite hard to show a difference between acupuncture and sham acupuncture. And right. the reason is that there's no placebo for acupuncture. You know, anything no. that you use as a sham yeah. is going to have some effect because the patient's got to believe that, you know, the needle's being inserted. So, um, so in that way, the difference between the two types of stimulation is really quite small. Um, but what what I found from the systematic reviews that I um, that came up in the literature search was that there was a distinct difference and quite a clinically significant difference as well between acupuncture and sham acupuncture for um, for managing obesity and overweight. Now the studies wow. tend to be a bit small and the quality is not great, hmm. um, but the evidence is is really compelling. I think. Can I just point out to our listeners, though, um, Dr. E, that you are indeed expert in sifting out the issues of sham um, acupuncture, correct? Yes, that's correct. And uh, so for my PhD, which I um, submitted in 2016, I ran 
a uh, randomised sham control trial on acupuncture for menopausal hot flushes. So I used uh, a what we call a non-invasive sham needle. So it's a blunt needle. It doesn't go through the skin, um, but it still does provide quite a bit of sensation because it's you know it's quite. Thin, it's the same. It's about the same width as an acupuncture needle. If, if you can imagine, sort of, you know, the pressure on a on a narrow point um, is 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 quite noticeable. Yeah. And of course, it has to be noticeable because the women need to believe that the needle's gone through the skin. So we didn't tell them that it was non-invasive. We said it was a different type of needling, and we. If we eventually included quite a number of women who had had acupuncture before, so I think, uh, I think the cutoff was sort of a month, um, and they really couldn't tell the difference. Um, even though they had had real needles before, they couldn't tell the difference um, between uh, sham and real acupuncture. So most women thought they were getting the real thing. Yeah. Um, and it didn't matter if they had had acupuncture before or not. With regards to acupressure... So, yeah. you know, could it be that you're getting a positive, not a placebo? Can you take me through? Yeah. Is it an accepted sham? It is an accepted sham um, from a scientific point of view, but I think it's also accepted that it's it's not a perfect solution yeah. and there are many problems with it. So one, uh, you know, obviously one argument is that the um, pressure and the sensation on skin and even surrounding muscle, um, you know, is enough to produce an effect. Um, and also, um, even though we uh, tried it on non-acupuncture points, it, it didn't seem to ah. make any difference. So both, you know, both both groups um, had the same um, had the same effect, really. Um, and it's it's a real wicked problem because if you think about it, you've got to have the patient or, or the participant rather believing that a needle's gone through the skin. How do you simulate that without that sensation? And people have tried different things. They tried even tried sort of lying a patient down and and showing them this mock video of pretending to needle them, but it's not actually their hand. Mm. And um, that's like a phantom limb type thing. Yeah, is it's it? like a phantom limb type thing. Yeah. yeah, but obviously that's you know that that's not really translatable to to a large clinical trial. But um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to it to be honest. But I think the theory that we went with when we chose Sham was that um, a lot of a lot of the teaching in acupuncture says, you know, it's not going to work unless we have the needle sensation that's called, and my accent's terrible, so I believe it's called the chi, which means the chi has arrived. Yeah. Um, and uh, from a physiological point of view, we believe that happens when you put the needle in, uh, you twirl it, and then the little um, muscle fibers will wrap around the needle yep. and you'll get that sudden sort of, um, it's quite it's quite marked. And so yeah. patients will say, Bruising. oh, yeah, that's it. Or yeah. I can feel, you know, it's numb or it feels like there's some pressure or it's warm. Yeah. Um, and we are taught um, traditionally that you, you need that sensation um, in order for it to work. And, you know, physiologically it makes sense because that, that, that's the sensation that would stimulate the um, small diameter nerve fibers that, that carry pain and temperature and so on, and that, that sort of activates that pain matrix. Um, 
But having said that, there's a branch of, you know, there's branches of acupuncture that, um, for example, Japanese acupuncture that don't require that needle sensation and that still seem to have a clinical effect. Um, so there's arguments against that mm. as well. We, we've answered part of it as usual, but not the full. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the thing is that with hot flushes, it was a, um, it was a subjective mm. Um, measure, so right. women have to count the hot flushes and so on. Um, I think it probably doesn't matter as much with an objective measure like weight or, or insulin resistance because there's not the the effect of expectancy or placebo um, with that. But having said that, I, I think, it, as I said, you know, I think it's really compelling that um, there were systematic reviews that showed a difference in weight between um, real acupuncture and sham acupuncture. I've just Hooking on to a point you made about hot flushes and your previous research there, like I do, I do concede that there are marked differences shown when women have a positive outlook of their menopausal transition as opposed to a negative yes. outlook. And so they Absolutely. just from changing their mind that they actually gain benefit. Um, so there is always the issue of the placebo response when, whenever yes. you're giving a hands-on therapy to a patient. Indeed, yes, absolutely. you know, Professor Frank Rosenfeld um, looked at cardiac research with this at Melbourne, at uh, Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And um, mm. just by doing a foot massage, they decreased yes. nociceptic stimuli. They decreased pain yes. medication requirements. So yes. notwithstanding yes. that that sort of aspect can be quite powerful, do you see biochemical changes, measurable changes that you can go, there is really something happening here? Are you talking about hot flushes? Or hot flushes. Yeah, I, like, I mean, the measurement of hot flushes is is controversial. You know, you, what are you looking at? Adrenaline? Yeah. It's not there. So Yeah, no. Yeah, there, there's no biomarker for hot flushes. Yeah. I think that was the problem. Yeah, there's no biomarker. You could use um, a thermal skin conductor um, to oh. measure... Um, you know, how sweaty women are, so how many hot flushes the they yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. But that, that's quite expensive and it doesn't actually correlate, correlate to um, to how many hot flushes they think they're having. Oh. But that's the real thing. That it's, what's important to the women is how many hot flushes they think they're having. So a subjective <laughs> yeah, measure yeah, in this case really is the best that we've got. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a completely patient-reported um, outcome measure. You can't do estrogen levels. It means nothing. Um, and so that, that was really the best that we had, um, which is why I'm really interested in um, PCOS and metabolic conditions because they are um, biomarkers that we can measure. So, for example, in the, um, in the trial that we're running, we're hoping to get some funding to um, measure... Um, uh, how um, glucose and insulin changes after giving women um, a specific dose of glucose. So that's the two-hour-old glucose tolerance test. Yep. Um, and that's a gold standard marker for um, insulin resistance. Yeah. So and um, and also looking at things like testosterone levels and obviously weight. And we're looking at um, heart rate variability and to see if that improves because that's a surrogate marker 
of um, sympathetic tone. Gotcha. Okay. So number of things here. So you've got gross measurement, things like weight. You've got biochemical yeah. measurement, testosterone, other hormones. You can calculate the HOMA IR from um, your results from yes. the glucose tolerance test. Yeah. So you, you've got uh, all area, this. Yeah, area of curve insulin. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a, a battery yeah. of tests that you can measure. Okay. So I've yeah. got to ask, what's your experience? We haven't got the, re the research maybe yet. And I don't want to give too much away, I guess, because you will be <laughs> speaking at the ATMS symposium in September about this. But, yeah. you know, what do you, yeah. what what are you feeling so far and what's the practice? Well, we're only just starting with this. So we're starting, we'll be opening up to recruitment very soon. So right. we won't have any preliminary data even in September yet. Um, but what we do have is um, some qualitative data from focus groups that we ran last year um, in women with PCOS and really asking them, look, what, what do you think? Do you, would you would you try acupuncture? You know, what's been your experience um, with PCOS? Um, you know, what if you tried? What works and what doesn't? And it was it was um, really interesting because women talk to us about um, their weight loss journeys and their weight loss struggles and how they've literally quote unquote I've tried everything known to man. Um, I know how to lose weight, but then the weight just Back, back on. Yep. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm sick of it. Um, now I'm really worried about getting diabetes. Um, I'm really worried about, you know, the future for my daughters. That's why I want to participate in this sort of research. And so I think there's a real need to find um, solutions for these women. Um, they are concerned about long-term consequences. So there's uh, um, reports of increased risk of diabetes, so possibly four or five-fold, um, and possibly of um, increased um, rates of heart disease as well. Um, but, you know, a number of them are struggling with their fertility issues. There's um, anxiety and depression um, is more common in women with PCOS as well. Um, and then there's the weight. Um, and there's the uh, the physical signs of the excess facial hair, which they, uh, a lot of them struggle with, and acne. And so they talk about this, what they call this, it's the whole package deal. It's, it's like they feel really, um, they feel really cheated, sort of handed this this package deal of infertility and um, and weight. Uh, weight struggles um, and um, and growing a beard, and they said it, it's so unfair. I think I'm. It's like I'm turning into a man, mm. and I really want to find a solution for this. And I would. And they all said, you know, look, I'd be happy to participate in a sham control trial. And that's no problem because you know we, you know, I understand the scientific need for it. I also think it's uh, um, important to measure, uh, uh, to mention appropriate management because you're you're dealing with sometimes not just controversial but really dangerous things here, with anxiety and depression. You know, yeah. you really need to think about appropriate management. So, how do you wend your way there, being duly qualified in in medicine and also TCM? Yeah, look, I am. Um, I am a a GP first and I practice in, in quite a conventional clinic so I would do everything that a, a regular GP would do um, and we're very lucky in Australia to have um, the first to have had the first guidelines um, produced um, a few years ago by the um, Centre for Research Excellence 
and PCOS um, that I've received, I've received funding from and some of the speakers from uh, at ATMS are also part of that, um, of that CRE. Um, and those guidelines um, very clearly set out um, the, you know, the importance of screening um, for anxiety and depression and appropriate management, um, the multidisciplinary management of PCOS, um, as well as, as the evidence um, for different treatments for fertility, for lifestyle and managing rates and so on. Um, and there will be a new, um, a new set of um, international guidelines released soon, as well as, uh, I believe, a um, an app for women to um, manage their uh, PCOS. So we're really lucky in Australia to have world leaders um, in PCOS management um, working on um, translation of these guidelines to um, practitioners. Um, and so I'd really urge all the practitioners um, to come along and, and listen to um, Rob Norman and Michael Spector and other people um, because they, they are really um, well ahead in their field. Oh, well ahead. PCOS. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. bit. I'm a little bit scared of interviewing Michael Steptoe because <laughs> his knowledge of <laughs> oh, physiology. <laughs> oh my God, it outpaces mine like nothing else. But I think <laughs> practitioners are going to learn a hell of a lot. Uh, that's in yes. September 2018 uh, for listeners. Uh, so you go onto the atms.com.au website, go to events, and look under there for um, registration of that event. When you're looking at appropriate management, safety. So I mentioned that thing about adjunct therapy. Where do you feel the place of integrative medicine is or integrative medicine approaches are with regards to polycystic ovarian syndrome? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I always think of, um, of complementary therapies um, and acupuncture as an adjunct. Um, so, for example, in in the um, in the study that we're about to open for recruitment, um, it is acupuncture as an adjunct to lifestyle intervention um, for managing weight and PCOS, um, and, uh, and and that's the way I think about it. Um, as a general rule in clinical practice as well as research, and I think it's um, it's a really important. Um, Angle to go for that I um, I am not comfortable with alternative medicine, which is um, the rejection of biomedicine. I think we we have so much to gain from um, from utilising you know the advances that have been made and are being made all the time in biomedicine. Um, I, I understand that um, the troubles that some patients have had with um, with the experiences with in um, conventional biomedicine, um, but I always encourage all my patients to to use, I guess, the best of both worlds, and that was the reason I, um, you know, I I've done the, you know, I've studied the two professions and tried to bring them together, particularly in the research field. Is that, you know, I think they both complement each other beautifully. Um, I think there are a lot of advantages to um, modalities like acupuncture, tai chi, yoga, mindfulness. Um, they're non-pharmaceutical, so you're not bringing into the mix, um, you know, the issues of, well, what are the pharmacokinetics of this? You know, how is it going to interact with other um, medications that I'm on? You know, what are the adverse effects um, of taking an ingestible? So I like the fact that um, there's a lot of um, safety data on acupuncture. So mm. there have been four very large um, um, studies um, looking at safety. Um, and we know that overall it's a very safe procedure. 
Um, and so I think, yeah, the adjunctive approach absolutely is um, the approach that I take. Of course, there's the obvious one, and that is that you get 100% compliance. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless Hopefully. you're chasing and them around the room yeah. with a needle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think with, with, you know, particularly with acupuncture for metabolic disorders, I think one of the really interesting things is not just the adjunctive approach, but it's that, um, okay, is it is it synergistic? So if you think about... Telling women to, you know, reduce calories. Um, and so I'm really interested in whether the acupuncture is going to help them with that because of the possible effect on appetite suppression. And will you be measuring, um, you know, things like cholecystokinin or ghrelin or alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone or any of these sort yeah, of biochemical we, surrogates? Yeah, we, we, we thought about that. Um, we thought about leptin, leptin. and um, the advice from um, Lisa Moran, who's a co-investigator and part of the CRE, um, is that, uh, you know, it's it's not the best biomarker for um, for what we're looking at. Um, you really need to, for appetite, you really need to have um, a sort of all-day thing where I think you, you you sort of measure um, how much women are eating, and, and that's very um, that's very long and drawn out and very expensive. Yeah, it needs so to be in a lab. We, unfortunately, yeah, we won't be doing that. Yeah, gotcha. but we are measuring um, some patient reported outcomes. I think weight, self efficacy, so how how confident women feel in controlling their eating in different situations, like um, well, watching TV or out in a social situation, gotcha. and that's a validated scale. So right. Um, I think that's the issue, though. As long as you're using a validated scale, um, like you know, yeah. you, you you spoke about leptin, but if you've got leptin resistance, well, that's not going to help you measuring leptin because we know yeah, that yeah, obese yeah. people can have high amount of leptin. So what's that's the point? That's right. Yeah. 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 So you need to be able to interpret it. It's got to be useful clinically. Yeah. What about yeah. future research? What What are the sort of hot topics in acupuncture at the moment? And, you know, what, what where's our um, direction of inquiry heading? Certainly not just pain. Yeah, certainly not just pain. And uh, my interest is in um, the role of acupuncture on the, on um, dampening down that fight or flight response mm. um, and then the effects on um, on weight and um, metabolic conditions. Um, so another uh, sort of hot topic for me personally is looking into the role of acupuncture for weight loss in breast cancer survivors. So we know that um, after a diagnosis of breast cancer, um, women do tend to gain weight um, and it's probably multifactorial. It probably is related to... Um, treatment factors, um, but we also know that this can um, uh, increase the risk of tumour recurrence um, and, uh, I guess, worsen prognosis overall. Yeah. Um, so the next step for this um, is to uh, run a similar um, pilot study um, on women with, uh, with early breast cancer, again, to see if there's an adjunctive effect of, of, of acupuncture on um on weight loss. Uh, so I've um, in the process of just looking through results from a national survey that I ran through um, Breast Cancer Network Australia, um, where we had over 300 women um, tell us about uh, their, I guess, what happened, what happened with their weight after breast cancer diagnosis, what they've tried, 
um, and uh, we, we're looking at um, whether or not we can predict those women who are at high risk of gaining more weight um, and then target an intervention um, that can help them maintain a healthy weight and improve their long-term health outcomes. Carolyn, can I ask you just to give us a little wrap-up, if you like, of some of the safety aspects and indeed registration aspects with regards to acupuncture in Australia? Because I hope I'm not overstepping the mark here, but are we getting to the over-medicalisation of acupuncture? Are we losing the rich history of traditional Chinese medicine by just doing this pain-related acupuncture? Obviously, you're not doing that. But I'm just wondering, are we losing the rich history of acupuncture? Look, that's an interesting question. And I think um, I think the history will always be there. And, you know, we, we use the history all the time. For example, we use the, um, the diagnostic principles in coming to a acupuncture prescription. So I use that for the menopause study. We're using that in, um, in PCOS and we'll use it in the breast cancer study as well. Um, but if you look at what's happening in China where, you know, the use of acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine is, is really quite mainstream, um, they, they are the, the experts in, in, I guess, bringing the two worlds together. So Western medicine and Eastern medicine. And so they will happily combine, um, Western medical prescriptions with some acupuncture and some herbs and go and do your Tai Chi and go and have your Chinese massage as well and, and the Chinese diet therapy. So it's all wrapped up in one. And in fact, I, I know that um, the, uh, the the Chinese doctors in China um, are allowed to prescribe and, and they do practice Western medicine um, in a way that they, they can't hear. So I hear what you're saying and that, you know, are we losing that history? Um, I think it's, it's really fascinating, really unpacking, um, you know, the mechanisms of acupuncture. Um, and while I, I find the, um, the philosophy and, um, and the different diagnosis really interesting, I also think, well, you know, they were, I guess, formulated in a time where we didn't have the, 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 um, the mechanism that we do now to sort of look into the human body. So we can't, uh, you know, they didn't have pathology, they didn't have radiology, they didn't have lots of different functional tests. Mm, mm. Um, they can't look at the microbiome and start looking at epigenetics. Now, that's another hot topic. That, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, we might, that would be real interesting. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I know. So I think, you know, having the two come together is um is not losing anything. I think we're gaining a lot. And I think it would just increase the translate translatability yeah. of acupuncture. Um and that's you know, that's the eventual goal I think that we can show, you know, what works, how it works, and ensure that it's provided safely and appropriately. And you asked about um registration yeah. as well. I don't know if this is a topic that's come up in another podcast or do you want me to go through that. Yeah, all. just just a little bit because you're dual qualified, um, whereas you get, yeah. you'll get a lot of doctors who yeah. have done medical acupuncture, which is called, yeah. forgive me if I get this wrong, is it called dry needling now? Yeah, so dry needling is, is a different thing altogether. So dry needling um, doesn't use any acupuncture principles. It really is just um, using an acupuncture needle and putting it into a trigger point. Gotcha. Um, so it's often done by you know musculoskeletal doctors or by um, physiotherapists. 
Um, so medical acupuncture is when um, obviously you're using some of the principles of Chinese medicine, but you don't have to do a, a, a TCM diagnosis, so you don't have to look at the tongue and pulse. So it's really sort of using that physiological knowledge of how it works. Um, and, and Chinese medicine is um, a regulated profession in Australia, so what that means is that um, all our Chinese medicine practitioners uh, um, have to be registered with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency um, under the Chinese Medicine Board. And this is a, you know, this was a really important step forward, I think, and we're the, still the only Western nation to nationally regulate mm. um, our practitioners. So chiros and osteos are, again, under the same scheme. Um, and it's, I think it's important because... Um, you know, acupuncture is not without risk. It needs to be done um, under certain conditions to reduce the risk of infection, for example. Um, and also, um, there are um, new guidelines um, that were released a couple of years ago by the Chinese Medicine Board about safe prescribing um, of um, Chinese herbs. And there are, uh, there's a separate registration for dispensing as well. Okay. Um, so taking into account the, I guess, you know, the, the potential um, safety concerns of herbal medicine, um, it is important that this, um, this profession is regulated and it increases the you know the the credibility of the profession as well to um to conventional health practitioners. So um I think my boss, Alan Ben Susan, so the director of Nickham Health Research Institute yes. was one of the the you know, the, the the founding people to put that that you know, that, that paper, that publication together to drive um drive the move towards regulation and, and my um my mentor and um PhD supervisor Charlie Shui um you know, set up the Victorian board, and yeah. now it's it's national, and I'm on the reference group for the board. Ah, um, so I, I fully support registration. I think it's it's a wonderful thing. Um, the you know the job of the board is to protect the public, um, and I think that can only be a good thing. Yes, that's absolutely well said. And I got to say, hats off and good on you for your work thus far and your future work. You know, you've worked really diligently with registration, with your work with a lot of women's groups, with looking at, um, you know, hot flushes previously. Now you're going to be looking at polycystic ovarian syndrome. Can't wait to hear you speak at the 2018 ATMS Symposium in September. That'll be fantastic. So I just thank you so much for taking us through the acupuncture aspects for polycystic ovarian syndrome today on FX Medicine. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.